Romans chapter 4, verse 13 to the very end. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on the grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I think, uh, again, of that, uh, that phrase that we often hear, uh, uh, thinking outside the box or uh, living outside the box. It's such an adventuresome, hyper-technological phrase. And I'm reminded of uh, a visit that the CEO of Google made to uh, DC in 2006. It was a big deal back then for uh, a technology leader to uh, take the initiative to meet with uh, politicians and share the vision that he has for technology. And I think I've uh, quoted this before, but uh, when he returned from that visit, there was a, a rather uh, icy reply to uh, his visit to, D- to D.C. Uh, by a political correspondent. Uh, and the reply had, uh, had this to say, that there's really no such thing as out of the box. That's what this commentator is saying to the CEO of Google. And she says, you know, you're always in the box. And uh, the more you think that you exist outside the box only shows how tragically ignorant you are of how deep the box is and how inescapable uh, or inescapably in the box we really are. And I use this quote uh, occasionally because I think it's very sane. Uh, we, can, we love technology so much, and uh, we really want to be on the cutting edge. It seems like uh, every week or every couple of weeks, there's some great new uh, product, and we just want to be out of the box so badly, or so it seems. But we never are, and the Bible tells us that over and over again. We're never out of the box. I mean, even as we think about the value of freedom, how precious freedom is, uh, you know, the, the Bible never lets us think that we're so free that we are actually free even from God. 
And sometimes we act like that, and certainly uh, those who don't believe in Jesus uh, will act like that, and, and we can call them to task on it. We're never so free that we're uh, free cosmically, free entirely from God. And even as we think that individuality is very important, you know, we're never so uh, individual, we're never so uh, uniquely ourselves that we actually are a distinct personality that is away from God. Everyone is uh, surrounded by God, circumscribed by God. Everyone is in God's box. And uh, as Paul comes to this point in Romans chapter 4, he has said that uh, actually multiple times. And I'm just distilling in those first three chapters what Paul has already made known. Uh, All of us are in God's uh, box. And he said this uh, first uh, first of all uh, by saying that, that God has created the box. I mean, Paul doesn't use the word box, but uh, he says that God uh, has created the world. Remember that God has shown to the world his invisible attributes ever since what? The creation of the world and the things that have been made. Uh, Christianity teaches that God has made the world and that God has made you. Uh, Whether you deny Jesus or not doesn't, doesn't change this reality. He has made you personally. You exist because of God. And Paul, in his sermon to, uh, the, uh, to, to the people of Athens in Acts 17, he says uh, this very thing. He says, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And even in our passage this morning, or especially in our passage this morning in verse 17, uh, Paul says uh, that God is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Uh, Nothing lives without God giving it life and existence and sustenance. And so Paul's already made the case. No one lives outside of God's box because God has made that box. God has made the world. God has made you and I. And then there's a a second way in which God, uh, or in which Paul uh, reminds us that uh, God is in a position of authority and we but live in a box. Uh, Paul has said that uh, God uh, holds the world accountable to himself. Romans uh, 3.19, the whole world will be held accountable to God. God has made humans to uh, exist in the world, but he's not uh, caused humans to exist uh, independent from himself. He's caused humans to exist in such a way that they have a relationship with God, whether they admit it or not. God has made the world. God has made us in the world. But God has made everyone in the world accountable to him alone. And so that's the second way that Paul has shown that we uh, live our lives uh, really uh, in, a, uh, in a box that God has made. But there's a, there's a third thing that Paul wants us to see about this. If, uh, God hasn't simply uh, made the world and made the population of the world. Uh, God hasn't simply made the world and the population of the world and then uh, holds that world accountable to himself. God does something else, and this is remarkable. God speaks to the world. 
he interacts with the creatures inside this box, creatures whom he's made in the box in which he has made. He spoke to Abraham, and look at where our passage opens. In verse 13, God spoke to Abraham by uh, telling Abraham that he was the recipient of a very special promise. In verse, in verse 13 is the first time the word promise shows up in Romans. And so God spoke to Abraham made a promise to him by speaking to him. But God also has spoken to us. And God has also spoken uh, through the church. We, we are actually able to uh, speak to the world that God has made, to people whom God has made, to people whom, uh, whom uh, God holds accountable. The church gets to speak to them. You know, Paul has already said uh, that, uh, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul says he's not ashamed of that. Uh, he proclaims that, that which God has proclaimed to him. But Paul also says in Romans 1 verse 8 that the faith of the Roman Christians is proclaimed in all the world. Not only has God spoken to us in the gospel, not only has God converted us by his grace, but God has given a voice to the church that the church would then speak into the world. Your faith, Roman Christians, is proclaimed in all the world. And so we live in a world that we did not make. We live a life that we did not create. And the maker of that world and the maker of us will hold us accountable. But he also speaks into that world, a world that he made, and he speaks to those whom he has made to let us know who he is and to invite us into a personal relationship with him. And he has done this by making a promise. And so the theme of this entire passage with those three proofs that God has made uh, the world and all things in it and speaks to that world, the theme is that the, the operation of that promise that the carrying forward of that promise that God speaks, it actually rests in God alone. The operation of the promise that God speaks into the world, it rests with God alone. But because it rests with, with God alone, we are able to live life in God's world. We can only live a hopeful life in this world if God carries forward his promise. Well... Let's begin here. How God's speaking works. And then we want to talk about Abraham as the recipient of that speaking. How God's speaking made a difference in Abraham's life. And we're going to finish where Paul would finish. And that is to ask the question, how God's speaking matters to us today. But first, how God's speaking, uh, it works. All of us are in a box. God created it. God will hold us accountable. And yet he speaks to us. And in the first verse, uh, Paul tells us that God speaks according to promise. I've said, a, said already, this is the first time the word promise appears. It's going to appear four times in our passage. We're also going to see it again in Romans 9. But this word promise, it shows up over 50 times in the New Testament. And, and really, we can call the gospel itself an offer of a promise. The good news of the gospel is God's promise to forgive our sins through the work of Jesus, to unite us in fellowship to Jesus through, or, or fellowship to him through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The, the good news of the gospel is God's promise to restore us and all things to his original plan. The good news of the promise are things that, that God can do. 
but we can't. And He has promised to do those things which we cannot do. You know, a more intimate uh, word for the word promise is the word covenant. Uh, If you're new here, I hope you have thought what, what it means that this church is called Covenant Presbyterian Church. I hope that you don't think that we are named for a school that is on Lookout Mountain. Please don't think that. We are not named for that school. We are named because covenant is a very intimate word that describes the kind of relationship that we have with God, the kind of relationship that we can't bring to fruition and the kind of relationship that only He can initiate. And covenant really is just a more intimate word, a more robust word for the word promise. Our church family is named for one of the most intimate ways of describing God speaking to us. God covenants Himself with us. You know, God covenanted Himself with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Just think about that. God entered into a close personal relationship with Adam and Eve. He doesn't just create and then turn them loose. Here's another image to to set on top of the image of a box. When I was a little boy, I used to um, take a styrofoam cup, and this is in uh, New Mexico, and I would go out and I would collect red ants and I would fill, fill the cup with dirt and red ants. And many of you may know what I did next. Then I would go, I would find black ants, and I would put black ants in there. And I would just hold the cup and I would just watch the cup. So perhaps I was a troubled child, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. But God doesn't create Adam and Eve in such a way that God, uh, God makes the, He fashions the styrofoam cup and He makes a beautiful setting inside that cup and He puts Adam and Eve inside the cup and He leaves them or He just sits above and watches them. God actually covenants with Adam and Eve. He enters into a close relationship. He promises to care for them. He takes the initiative to care for them. He promises to be with them forever. But to be sure, he wants, their affection, he wants their affection to be on him. And so in that covenant, which we call a covenant of works or a covenant of life, he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, again, he didn't make Adam and Eve as robots, programming them to have a warm heart towards him. He made them for the purpose of loving him. And so he enters into a relationship with them, a covenant of works, a covenant which they reject. Regardless of how we might discern the way in which they were to show God's affection beyond merely not eating the fruit of one particular tree, the Bible is very clear that they rejected God, the one who initiated a covenant relationship. And what's remarkable about God is that God immediately made another promise. He made a covenant of grace with them, a covenant in which he would still maintain an intimate relationship with his people. A breach has been made. Rebellion has been committed. But this covenant of grace would not be based on their obedience, but on their trust in the obedience of someone else. This is the covenant that God immediately entered upon uh, in Genesis 3.15. God says, will you trust me to restore our intimate relationship to the way it once was? Will you trust me to restore that relationship? 
God makes this covenant of grace with Adam and Eve right after the fall when he promises to provide an offspring from the woman who will one day crush the head of Satan. And then God unfolds this covenant of grace over world history. Uh, He does this before Noah, and he does this before Abraham here in our passage. He does this before Moses and before King David. And then in the era of the prophets, he uh, talks about a new covenant that he is making with the people. And finally, the ground and the basis of the covenant of grace is made explicitly clear in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus the anointed one. It is God doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. It is God looking at a rebellious people represented by the rebellion of Adam and Eve, initiating a relationship and claiming them for himself. Now I say all of this, which is review for for many of you, I'm not ashamed of that, uh, of, of saying something that you know already. I hope, I'm happy that it's a review for all of you, but I say all of this because our passage is about that, uh, that promise of God, of the covenant of grace to Abraham. And what Paul tells us in, in, in a very quick way, he tells us four things about that covenant promise that God makes with Abraham. The first of the four is this, that God's promise is addressed to many, not just Abraham. God's covenant of grace promise is made to many And we see in our passage that the word offspring shows up quite a bit. That the promise is made to Abraham and all of his offspring. You can see that in 4.16. And we can scan down to 4.18. Offspring seems to refer uh, immediately to to Abraham's uh, children and then perhaps his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Uh, And then in uh, 4.16, offspring, well, it it seems to refer to a couple of different kinds of people. It's it's very difficult for us to ascertain uh, what is meant by God's promise being expressed to Abraham and to all of his offspring. But I think there is a very clear way to understand this in the beginning of our passage, and that's like this. Here we see the example in Romans 4.16 of how we ought to read 4.13. When Paul says that the promise was made to Abraham and his offspring, offspring seems to refer to two different kinds of people, which is what I think Paul is focusing on. You see, the promise that God makes to Abraham and to his offspring includes uh, those who, are adhere, uh, who adhere to the law. And this would be then a Jewish person. And then he also talks in 4.16 about not, not merely the one who is an adherent of the law, but the one who shares the faith of Abraham or one of faith, which would be a Gentile person. Do you remember in the theme, in the theme verse for all of Romans, Romans 1.16, Paul says that uh, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, to, who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think that's what we're reading in 4.13. Abraham and his offspring, offspring who are Jewish and offspring who are Gentile. You see, the promises for every kind of person on the planet. In, uh, in this era, in the first century, uh, all of humanity is divided only in terms of those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles, at least in the verbiage of Paul. So the promise of the gospel, it it actually is addressed not to just one or two and not just to uh, an ethnic body of people. Uh, The promise of the gospel, it's addressed to many and many and many. 
This is part of our uh, encouragement to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel. Because right here in this verse, uh, the promise of the covenant of grace is not, is not addressed simply to Abraham or Abraham's uh, genetic family. It's to many. That's the first thing Paul wants us to see about God's promise. So God's promise is addressed to many, but God's promise, secondly, is also addressed, uh, or, or, or is uh, a promise that includes an extraordinary inheritance. There's something that's striking about 413 that we skip over. The recipients of this promise are going to inherit the entire world. That's what, that's what God says to Abraham. The recipients are going to inherit the entire world. Remember that Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. We remember that. Well, in Romans 4.16, Paul reminds us that Abraham is the father of us all. We're a part of those uh, many nations. And then in the next verse, in 4.17, uh, the Old Testament promise of Abraham is actually quoted that he will be the father of many nations, Genesis 17.5. And as I said last week, the word for nation and the word for Gentile are the same word. So to inherit the world, well, that's an extraordinary promise, isn't it? The covenant of grace brings us into an intimate relationship with the Creator, and with that relationship, there are extraordinary privileges. Just think of being adopted into the home of a, a king or a queen or an extremely wealthy family. Uh, to be adopted into that family brings with it extraordinary privileges. Well, the covenant of grace brings us into an intimate relationship with the creator of all things. And the privileges are extraordinary. It's, it's to be close to the king. Do you think it odd that in Romans 8.28, Paul would say, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Just think about that. It's, it's almost like we, uh, we need to have very close friendships with non-believers that, uh, that we could say this to them, that they would echo back, that that is a really crazy thing to believe. That for those who love God, those who are regenerated, those who are uh, part of this intimate relationship with God who is the maker of all things, that all things for that person work together for good according to God's purpose. Everything in our lives works together for good according to God's purpose. That's a, that's a remarkable thing to say. One scholar says that for that reason alone, uh, the uh, way that we need to understand uh, being an inheritor of the world is that uh, Abraham and all who by sovereign grace constitute his seed do actually, in a sense, own the whole universe. In a sense, a Christian owns the whole universe. And so the promise, the promise that's made to many is also a promise for a, an extraordinary inheritance, an inheritance that's absolutely beyond imagination. The maker of the cosmos, the maker of everything that you see, the one who has given you life, the one who will judge the entire world, he cares about what is going to happen to you tomorrow at 8.52 a.m., and 8.53 a.m., and 8.54 a.m. That's outlandish, and yet it's true. 
There's a sense in which all Christians inherit the entire universe. It's so extraordinary, in fact, that this, uh, the fact that the promise uh, is uh, for uh, an inheritance of the entire world, uh, that some will look at this word for offspring in Romans 4.13, and they'll, they'll get just a little sense of Jesus, so that uh, I've just said that the word offspring in 4.13 refers to uh, Jews uh, and Gentiles. But you could also look at that word offspring in 4.13, and think that it's not merely Jews and Gentiles, but that it has something to say about Jesus himself, the one who truly does inherit the entire world. And the reason uh, you can see the word offspring meaning the Messiah is because Paul speaks this very way in Galatians chapter 3. We know that the true inheritor of the world is one offspring in particular, there's an offspring with a capital O. <laughs> and we then are the little O offspring, uh, the body of Jews and Gentiles who inherit something extraordinary, but the thing that we inherit, we inherit through a mediator. And we receive the benefits of the promises of God, but we receive all of those benefits, as it were, uh, handed to us by the hands of Jesus the Messiah. So he's an offspring, and there's a hint of uh, his uh, offspring authority in 4.13. But to the two things so far is that God's uh, promise is for many, and God's promise is extraordinary. The third thing is this, is that God's promise is firm. Look what Paul says in 4.16. He says that his promise is guaranteed to all his offspring. You know, the promise doesn't lose its grip. The promise doesn't uh, wear out like clothing. The promise doesn't get uh, ground away slowly like a well-worn gearbox. The promise is firm. It's guaranteed. Uh, the word that Paul uses is very, uh, very stern. He uh, really is saying that the promise is uh, absolutely and entirely unshaken. You know, we live in a world in which things are changing all around us. Every day there's uh, something uh, new, it seems, certainly with regards to the information that we take in. Uh, how long does it take for a web page to be refreshed? Well, it's not even refreshed by people, it's refreshed by robots. Just hit refresh time and time again, and there's always something new. Well, God's covenant of grace promise is firm, locked into the ground, immovable, full of force, never shaken. God's covenant of grace, God's promise is firm. And then fourth, and we'll rest after this, God's promise is a promise of grace alone. You know, the ESV actually uses in verse 16 the word uh, rest. Uh, the word rest doesn't show up uh, in the passage. Uh, Paul, as soon as he gets to talking about uh, the promise of being received uh, through faith uh, by grace alone, it's almost like Paul speaks in shorthand. 
when I was very young, my mom worked as a, um, at, in, in a realtor's office. She was uh, an administrator of some sort, but she uh, wrote in shorthand. So she must have been taking down notes from meetings or something. But I remember uh, seeing uh, how my mom would write shorthand. It's amazing. I don't know that anyone writes shorthand now, but uh, I remember uh, having a, a Greg shorthand book in the house and just pondering over it, just fascinated that those little squiggles meant anything at all to my mom. And when we get to this point in, uh, in Romans 4 where Paul is talking about the gospel being received uh, through faith by grace alone, uh, Paul seems to be writing in that Greg shorthand. Uh, everything seems to be really uh, clipped, really uh, fast. He says uh, this about the gospel, uh, that uh, the, uh, the promise, uh, it's translated as rests on grace alone, but he says, according to grace. That's it. The promise. It's according to grace. And he says more. He says uh, the promise is based on faith. And he says that the one who believes is one who is of faith. I mean, think about that. According to grace, on faith, of faith. And then just to be sure, Paul adds that it's, that it's, not, the, it's not of law. And here, even law becomes simply of law. God's promise, it rests on grace alone. And Paul wants us to get that. He wants this to be very clear to us. He says that if it isn't by faith, then, then the promise is nothing. It means nothing. He, he says uh, faith, if it's by law, then faith is empty, promise void. That's really how he says it. Faith empty, promise void. That's all. I want you to think about how Paul then describes Abraham. How many things could we say about that great man, that faithful man? So much about his life is worthy of elevation. But in 4.17, what does Paul say about Abraham? He believed. And again, he uses the Greek word for faith. This promise that God has for us, it's a promise that comes to us by faith, according to grace. And a believer is someone who is of faith. And Abraham is one of those believers. He believed. So quick. It's almost as if Paul knows how tricky our minds and our hearts are. We're going to twist this promise uh, over and over and over again so that the promise looks like it's something that we have worked for, we've earned somehow. It's how the human heart works. But Paul couldn't be more clear. It only comes out of God's grace. By faith is how you receive it. There's this uh, funny story uh, of two old Dutch pastors talking to one another. And one of them comes up to the other who is a very famous, well-respected theologian. And this old Dutch pastor has not written a single thing in his life. He has... Uh, no uh, great uh, literary career goes to the one who does have a great literary career, one of the stars of the theological uh, cosmos, uh, Herman Bovink. And this old pastor goes up to him and he says, I just know this. If I, if I had to bring even one sigh to my salvation, then it would be lost forever. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. 
If I had to bring even just a sigh, a brief exhale of air for my salvation, I'd be lost forever. That's what he understood about himself as a Christian in his old age. And Paul says that this uh, gospel promise is uh, extended to many. And he says that uh, the promise itself is for something extraordinary. And he says that this promise is absolutely resolute and firm. And if you could even sigh to get it, it would be worthless to you. The promise rests on grace alone. Well, that's pretty remarkable. The lives of Christian men and women are lives lived not merely in God's box, a box made by him, and lives not merely uh, lived in accountability before God, and lives uh, not only lived as hearers of God's promise. A Christian gets to live in this box having a reconciled relationship with the maker of all things to be eternally secure to be filled with peace, to know truly who they are as a human being. And that makes them entirely different than anyone else in that same box. And we can see a bit of that if we uh, consider the kind of life that Abraham lived. You know, we, we very often, we just don't see uh, the realities that are behind a person's life. Uh, it's uh, remarkable that there are many, uh, you know, we think of people who have done amazing uh, things. Uh, we don't often get behind uh, the amazing things they've done to see how much they uh, struggled or suffered to get there. And the same is true with uh, Abraham. He has, uh, he's just achieved so many accomplishments, but Paul actually helps us to get behind Abraham and see what kind of life he lived behind all of those accomplishments. Uh, Abraham lived his entire life, well, uh, from age 75 on. He lived his life under the shadow of promise. Paul says repeatedly uh, that he believed God. But we also know that Abraham lived an active life. He worked. He accomplished much. Uh, Abraham's a hero to us. But Paul wants us to understand that every day was just like the one before. Uh, Abraham couldn't count on his accomplishments to guarantee the promise of God. Uh, every day he had to come to grips with that. Every day he had to live a faithful life in the present. But as he is living his life, he has to understand that all of my li life lives under the promise of God. All of my future belongs to God. Uh, Abraham had successes, and he had to understand those successes in light of God's great grace. Abraham had failures, and he, had, and he sinned, and he had to understand those failures and sins in light of God's great grace. And just as he couldn't count on his accomplishments to guarantee God's promise, so too he couldn't count on his failures to negate God's promises. Have I just described Abraham, or have I described you, Christian? That's us. That's how we live life. We can't count on our accomplishments to guarantee God's promise. And we can't count on our failures to negate God's promises. 
Believing in God's promises, living under the shadow of God's promise day in, day out, uh, with our successes and with our failures, that is a norm, that's the normal Christian life. And what, what Paul is, is saying to us is that Abraham was just like that. And he actually gives three really significant obstacles in Abraham's life. He lived a life of faith, but he had to do that amidst three significant obstacles. And the first one is so clear, the obstacle of the degradation of his own body. Look at verse 19. Paul says that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. That is such impolite language for someone who is old. And that's what Paul says. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And yet, Abraham, he had to get up every day and live a life in such a way that he would be faithful to God in the present, but that he would not define his relationship with God based on either his accomplishments or his failures. And every day, what is he doing? He is watching his body die more and more. And the same thing is happening to his wife. And Paul says in verse 19, uh, when Sarah considered the, the, or when he considered the barrenness or the deadness of Sarah's womb. You think about how personal a struggle that would have been for Sarah. But Paul is actually talking about the struggle that Abraham endured because that was his wife. If he felt that he had any ability to exercise his own body into health, to make his his body stop decaying, he can't do that for Sarah. And, And even if he could do that for Sarah, he couldn't do that for Sarah's womb. And yet, look what Paul says, that there is not merely a barrenness of Sarah's womb, there is a deadness of Sarah's womb. Every day, Abraham had to get up and and greet a day like this. His body is decaying. Sarah's body is decaying. And her womb, well, it's dead. (laughs) I think, though, that there is another obstacle that Abraham endured in his life. And from that obstacle, we can learn what it's like for ourselves to live a life of faith under the promise of God. I want you to consider how Abraham summarized, or how Paul summarizes Abraham's life. In Romans 4.20, Paul tells us that no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God. No unbelief made him waver. I think that we know in our own lives as Christians what unbelief is like, and we know what wavering is like. But you see, Abraham, he didn't vacillate between faith and no faith, or faith in God and faith in self. That seems to be what Paul's saying in verse 20. It's an extraordinarily high standard. To, to waver is to, uh, is to, not, to not be, um, it's not a heart issue. Wavering is a mind issue. Uh, to waver is to comp- contemplate things to such a degree that you kind of tie your intellect into a knot. Does anyone know that experience? You, you just, you, you think and think and think, and, and now you begin overthinking. You're, you're hyper-analyzing, and the overthinking makes you do foolish things. You've convinced your thing, yourself that things that are not true are actually true. And and that's a bit of what's behind that word uh, waver. But look what Paul says about Abraham. He didn't vacillate and he didn't waver. His circumstances didn't throw him off course so that he would trust his own works and not trust God's works. We know that there are examples where that wasn't true, but this is what Paul is saying about Abraham. 
And, and also, uh, Abraham, uh, he not only didn't vacillate because of his circumstances, but he didn't waver through his own hyper-analysis. He had this faith that was like a child. He trusted. He placed all of his circumstances into perspective, and he still managed to trust the promises of God. That is a very beautiful picture. But we know more about Abraham than that, don't we? We know that there were low points in his Christian walk. Paul goes on, though. He says in 21 that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. But we know more, don't we? We know that Abraham lived, a, lived a, uh, a mixed life. And I think that's why Paul says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham wasn't always like this. But praise be to God that we have a picture in the life of Abraham that is encouraging to us as Christians. That Abraham was the kind of man that over time he grew strong in his faith. He had to work at this. Uh, he had these obstacles, and these obstacles actually uh, sharpened him. Abraham's life was extremely uh, difficult. He lived in exile rather than uh, uh, a metropolis city uh, with all of the bases covered. Uh, he lived knowing that he would be with God for all eternity, but he's watching his body decay, and he knows that he's full of sin. He's trusting that God has declared him righteous, but he knows every day that he doesn't deserve it. That's the kind of life that Abraham lived. And then he looks at his old decaying body, and he looks at the old decaying body of his wife, and yet Paul says, what is Abraham doing? He's growing strong in his faith. We work so hard to find the purpose of life, our, our mission in life, and, and we get lost in that mission by defining it in terms of a career or, or some kind of professional status or uh, money or uh, retiring comfortably. And this is, this is our mission in life. Our mission in life is to grow strong in our faith as we give glory to God. That's what Christians are called to do. So two obstacles, but there's a third. The obstacle of his own decaying body and the obstacle of the decaying body of his wife. But what about the obstacle of his son Isaac? Abraham knew that God's promise would not come through Eliezer and that God's promise would not come through Ishmael. And after the birth of Isaac, it, it all made sense to him. Oh, God's promise comes through Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice that Isaac. To march up Mount Moriah and to offer him there as a burnt offering. And what does Abraham do? I would challenge you to read Genesis 22 and see if there's any evidence at all of a vacillating man who is wavering in his own intellectual ponderings. The, the, the passage reads uh, with Abraham rising, but not any time of the day. He's rising early in the morning. And Abraham made all of the necessary preparations and he goes up on uh, the uh, third day, and he uh, lays his son on the altar. But of course, he built that altar. And he takes in his hand the fire, and he takes in his hand the knife. And, and all through Genesis 22, Abraham is a man with a mission, purpose. He is working so deliberately. Uh, his son isn't just placed uh, on the altar. He lays his son, takes the fire in his hand, takes the knife in his hand, absolutely, completely committed and deliberate. And when his son asks what he's, what he's doing, uh, Abraham doesn't mix words. What does Abraham do? He just tells him the gospel. 
His son asked, what what are you doing? And he says, God will provide for himself. God will provide. Do you believe that God will provide for you? He built an altar, laid the wood, bound Isaac, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I've quoted the text. Reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. Remarkable language. It was like the test of the covenant of works given to Adam and Eve. Don't eat this fruit. The problem was that in reality, Isaac really didn't deserve to live, did he? I mean, Abraham didn't deserve to live. He's a man saved by God's grace. He was a sinner. He can't save himself. Isaac's the same way. He's a sinner just like dad. There's nothing they could have done to avoid God's punishment. God made their box. God made them. God would hold both of them accountable. But he spoke into that box, and he made a promise. And the promise was that he was the only solution to their problem. And he provided a sacrifice and atonement so that Isaac might live. Do you think why Abraham was willing to do this to his son, marching up Mount Moriah thinking, you know, God's not going to go through with it. He, never, he just won't do it. I'm old. Sarah's old. The womb's dead. It's not going to go through with it. Well, we can thank God that we have the writer of Hebrews to actually tell us why Abraham went through with this uh, crazy mission that really is not his mission at all, is it? It's God's mission. And in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be made. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And that's why he did it. That's why he did it. God said, it's this boy. And if God has me kill him, then God, God is, has the power to resurrect him. It's this kid. That's why he did it. Do we believe the covenant of grace to that degree? You see, faith isn't meant to be uh, something that uh, converts us. Faith is meant to be with us moment by moment in our lives. It's not meant to be something present just at the beginning of our converted lives. It's with us always. It's who we are as Christians. We know that our plan is not the plan that's going to work. It's God's plan that will work. It's unshaken, No circumstance, no intellectual gap, no doubt is going to uh, throw God off his covenant purpose. Now, interestingly enough, we actually, uh, in many ways, don't live with a whole lot of suffering today. Uh, In a little book about um, what it's like to be a Christian in the suburbs, Ashley Hale says that our souls suffer in the suburbs when we have the financial means to always fill our needs. She says, we, just, we have so much money in the suburbs, we just can always uh, fulfill uh, our needs uh, with our debit card. Uh, we sleep on feather beds and we eat rich food, she says. And so she ponders, you know, what does it look like then for our faith uh, to grow in the suburbs? And she offers this piece of advice that I think is, is helpful. Uh, she says this, she says that we must practice the discipline of being curious about our small hunger pains. 
I think what she's really uh, saying is what an apologist uh, said a couple decades earlier, that we are to uh, suspect our own appetite. But when we have desires or longings, uh, we need to investigate those longings and find and just, just think about what it means to satisfy those longings in the promise of the covenant of grace. You know, we long to be respected by others. We long for professional success. We long for better marriages. We long for better families. Uh, this is what Ashley Hales would call hunger pains. And Abraham longed for a younger body. He longed for his wife to have a younger body and a younger womb. He longed for his son to grow up fast and to be the manifestation of the blessing of the nations through many children. Abraham lived in exile. Uh, he longed, I'm sure, uh, to not be a sojourner all the time. He was subject to local politics. I'm sure he longed to be free from uh, the locals and their godless leadership. But in all of those longings, he trusted God. And Paul says that it was counted to him uh, or the words, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, but written for our sake. It's going to be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And I wonder if our imagination is just too small. We long for so much, but God is himself our peace our security, our hope. And what we need is not our own work of satisfying our many longings. What we need is God's work on satisfying us for all eternity. He needs to raise up a sacrifice for us. He needs to account for our sin. Uh, he needs to uh, satisfy our longings. He needs to raise us in someone else anew. Uh, he needs to declare us innocent for all eternity. And brother and sister, he has done this. He has done this, and we have the privilege of living in a box made by God, having been created by God, knowing that we are held accountable by God, but with the certainty that His presence is with us for all eternity. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want you to uh, hear uh, almost how crazy it is that Christians believe this. But look at your own life. You will never be satisfied. One uh, writer uh, who is writing about li what life is like in the 20th century in the Sahara Desert, he himself was a, a pilot and got to know uh, folks who live there. Uh, he says that he could witness an old man uh, who was a slave of a family uh, be released into freedom and excited about being released into freedom, living his whole life as a slave, and then his owners uh, turning him loose. You don't have to come back to this tent anymore. You're free. Well, why are they turning him loose? Because he's old and useless. There's nothing more that he can offer. And this writer uh, has watched many and many of these old, uh, old slaves leave in freedom with extraordinary confidence and happiness 
And he would see them. He, he flew an airplane. He delivered mail. Uh, and he would uh, see them over the course of the months. And they would be as happy as ever. They're free. They're free. They're free. And what they would do with their life is they would go from tent to tent looking for handouts because they have nothing. And pretty soon they lay down on the sand of the desert and they die. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, I want you to understand that any means that you have of making sense of the world, making, uh, making yourself feel uh, full of peace and happiness, if Jesus is not a part of that, it will not last. It won't last. As God speaks, he offers to us a promise, and the promise is that your work will not save you. Your happiness is temporary happiness. You cannot spend your days chasing a career or chasing a happy life and expect to be satisfied. Satisfaction will never be had. This is not how you succeed in this box. There must be something more, and you can feel it. And the Bible says that there is something more. And Paul is inviting us to receive the promise of God's work on our behalf. He can bring that satisfaction, and that satisfaction will last forever. The operation of that promise, that covenant of grace, rests with God alone. But because the operation of that promise rests with God alone, you can live in this box with peace and hopefulness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you minister to us in a way that is eternal. And we pray that you would uh, alert our senses to the many ways that we try and duct tape our way through life, satisfy our immediate needs, make plans that we are sure are going to guarantee our happiness in the future. Father, we thank you for those little ways that we can see our hearts longing for things that will never satisfy. We thank you for that as Christians because it reminds us it reminds us of your work, which is enduring and eternal. You will sanctify us. You will glorify us. And we will be with you for all eternity. We pray for those who do not know you. We pray that they would understand their many longings differently and receive your promise in the covenant of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.